go. Easter month is upon us, and uh, we are uh, really excited about what is coming up this Sunday, next Sunday, and then on Good Friday, we're going to be teaching on the theme, The Way of the Cross, and then, of course, Resurrection Sunday. And then we have our extravaganza, the big uh, blowout uh, uh, kids' uh, Easter egg hunt on uh, uh, Easter weekend, Saturday. In fact, uh, we have a lot of people preparing. We had our young at heart seniors putting a bunch of candy and eggs Give them a big hand right there. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eggs. I want you to look closely and see if any of these people are eating the candy. Can you see them? Um, But in all seriousness, we really appreciate everybody that's working so hard to make everything come together. A lot of preparation that goes into these things, as you know, and uh, we appreciate it. Make sure you invite someone to come with you on Easter. Uh, We're adding services. It's going to be a great, great day. Now, uh, this series, you'll notice throughout the building, pictures, and of course behind me, a beautiful stained glass motif. And that's really the metaphor that I want us to think about here a little bit over the course of uh, this week, next week, and on Good Friday. My wife and I have had the great uh, privilege, really, of traveling around Europe and in the Holy Land on our Holy Land trips to visit many cathedrals, many beautiful church buildings, and seeing so many gorgeous stained glass windows. And in many cases, there are scenes on each stained glass window, and sometimes many different sections. So you'll see the nativity, or you'll see the uh, Jesus, you know, you know, healing the blind man, or feeding the 5,000, or, or you'll see him praying in the garden, as you see right here. Or you'll see the arrest, you'll see the, uh, the false fake trial, illegal trial, or you'll see the, uh, the whipping, you know, the torture, or of course the crucifixion. And I was thinking this week of how awesome it is to walk into those huge, amazing uh, church buildings, cathedrals, and just sense in a way, in a unique way, the awesomeness of God, and then look at these beautiful stained glass windows, stories that we read in the Bible for sure, but just to see them pictured. We've attended a mass at St. Peter's. We've been at Notre Dame before the fire. And it's just amazing to kind of just be in that environment for a moment and contemplate, meditate, ponder, reflect about how awesome our God is. And that's what I want to lead us in doing over these next couple of weeks. Today is the fifth Sunday of Lent. Lent is 40 days of preparing our hearts for Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And I want us to take these next couple of weeks at least to just really challenge us as a church family to think deeply, to ponder reflectively, to seriously go deep, with our appreciation for what Christ has done for us. What he's done for us specifically on the cross, even before we get to Resurrection Sunday. The early church did not have the Bible as we have it, and so they would meet together and they would sing and they would chant and they would uh, recite creeds and they would write songs and write creeds. And one of the earliest creeds, the Apostles' Creed, is what you see on the screen right now. And it was a creed, some say it started in the second century uh, AD, some much later, there's a little bit of uh, difference of opinion. But 
regardless of when it began, it became something that was very, very precious to early Christians. And in the spirit of being contemplative and meditative, I want us to think very deeply about what we believe about the Christian faith, because a lot of people today are hijacking Christianity to kind of attach it to whatever cause they want to advance. And I want us to just look at the pure gospel, the the pure truth of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he wants to accomplish in us and through us. And so to kind of get things started, would you say out loud with me, let's say it together, the Apostles' Creed, all together in one voice. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. The Holy Catholic Church is not necessarily our neighbors across the street, although we appreciate them for sure, but it's, it's the church universal. It's people everywhere. The Holy Catholic Church, people everywhere who believe in Jesus Christ. And so this is a creed that would be stated over and over and over again. As we think of Orthodox Christianity, people for over 2,000 years have celebrated the person of Jesus Christ. They've celebrated the cause for which he came. They have, with great adoration, said, thank you, Jesus, for coming to die on the cross for my sins. And I want us to think deeply about that for a few moments. What is the cross to the Christian faith? What is the cross to the Christian faith? It's everything. It's everything. Without the cross, we would have no hope. The cross hangs around many people's necks. The cross adorns churches and hospitals. The cross is mounted on many walls and kitchens and living rooms. We see it in painting and other art forms. Christianity and the cross are inseparably linked, and for good reason. The cross. The cross shows God's love. The cross reminds us that his love is indescribable. It is, it is hard to comprehend, incomprehensible. His love is vast and magnanimous. And I want us just to ponder and think as if we're in a big cathedral on bended knee looking at that stained glass and just thanking God for all those different biblical accounts that we see portrayed with powerful music in the background. And we are just in awe of what Christ has done. Try to place yourself in that kind of a posture for a few moments here this morning. The cross means everything to us. Because he first loved us, we want to love him with all that is within us, more than ever before, to live and love and lead like Christ and show our love to him every way we can. The way of the cross is the theme of our series, and It is the life that Jesus adopted. It is the mission that he chose. It is the sacrificial path that he pursued out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me. And over these next 
couple of weeks, this Sunday, next Sunday, and Good Friday, I want us to think about what the message of the cross means to us individually. And I put together a little acrostic to, to guide our thinking as we make our way through it. The crucifixion shows God's love. The resurrection proves God's power. Christ's obedience in coming to die for us describes his mission. The sacrifice on the old rugged cross explains God's plan and the salvation that we can receive through faith in the crucified, risen Christ is all about meeting our need. We had a big sin need, and we couldn't solve it, and we needed a Savior, and Jesus came to meet our need. Today we're going to look at crucifixion and resurrection, and then next week we'll look at the other three, but let's talk about the crucifixion specifically. Jesus Christ was born to be buried. He was, he was destined to die. He came to be crucified. Just think about that. He leaves the glory of heaven, he comes to earth, and he's on a mission to eventually die a horrific death on an old rugged cross. You talk about a mission. You talk about a somber reality. That's the way of the cross. You see, Genesis 3, we see sin enters the world. Adam and Eve sin, they fall, and from that point on, humankind has sinned, uh, every single one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin, the Bible says, separates us from God. There's an unbridgeable chasm. There is a, uh, uh, a gulf between unholy man and a holy God that cannot be bridged in our own. God himself had to come and be the bridge, and he sent his son Jesus Christ to be that bridge that allows us to be reconciled to the Almighty. It took Jesus coming to give his life. The sacrifice of bulls and goats in the Old Testament only worked for a season, but only Jesus, the God-man, could cover the sins of those who came before, those that lived during his time, and all of us who have come after. Only God could pay for the sins of the world. Only God. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die for our sins. I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely Jesus took, a, took our pain and bore our suffering, yet he considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all are like sheep. We have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. Jesus Christ the Lamb of God. I love the words of John the Baptist when he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. He looked up and he saw Jesus coming, approaching for the first time. And what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. What a powerful, pivotal moment. John knew that Jesus was on a mission. He came to be crucified. One of the most penetratingly powerful passages in all of the New Testament to me on this subject is the one that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse number 18, he says, 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are far from God, to those who are not believers, to those who are not Christians, to people on the outside looking in. The idea of the cross is absolutely bizarre. If you think about it, during Jesus' time, Roman times, those who were crucified were criminals and traitors. In fact, one of the most vivid pictures that we read from history is in the Third Servile War, Spartacus's rebellion resulted in 6,000 rebels or traitors being crucified on the Appian Way. So imagine walking down the Appian Way and looking to your left and right 6,000 times. Crucifixion was brutal. It was the most painful, torturous way to die that the Romans could come up with. And they were uncivil about it, to be sure. And Jesus was not a criminal. He was not a traitor. He was not a rebel. He was a savior of the world. But it was God's plan that his son would hang on a tree for you and for me. Before he was hung on that cross, he was arrested in the garden. He was beaten and spit upon. He was tortured. The cat of nine tails came down on his back over and over and over. That leather strap, nine different straps on the end of that whip, each had a stone, a piece of glass, metal, and it cut through Christ's flesh over and over again. He was beaten to an inch of his life. And then he was tasked to carry his cross, which he couldn't do, up to Golgotha. Someone had to help him, and he barely made it there. And once there, he spread out for his hands and feet to be nailed brutally to that tree. And then he was suspended between heaven and earth for me, for you. And for those outside the faith looking in, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolish. It makes no sense. He goes on to say in verse 21 that the Jews look for signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The crucifixion. Indescribable love. Unimaginable love. Jesus is nailed to that tree and with every breath is excruciating pain and with every breath is greater suffocation until he finally dies for us. I'm reminded of the words of the great hymn, The Love of God. It describes the cross to me so deeply. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich, how pure. How measureless and strong. It shall forever more endure. The saints and angels song. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless 
and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Paul says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And then the verse I just quoted a moment ago, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God in his infinite wisdom knew the cross equaled love, and from that moment on, all of humankind would look back at the Christ event, the cross event, and say, God's love is overwhelming. I can't even begin to comprehend it. And that is the love that compels us to want to follow him and love him and serve him with all that's within us. I want you to imagine you are in a beautiful cathedral with stained glass windows around in the ambiance of awesomeness as you worship the Lord. Tell him how much you love him. Tell him how much you want to serve him. Think deeply, ponder and contemplate sincerely. Commit to devote yourself afresh and anew to God like never before. The Jews, Jesus' own people, looked for signs. They wanted a Messiah to come in who would part the Red Sea like they knew from Old Testament times. They envisioned their Messiah coming in on a white stallion brandishing a shiny sword who would come and destroy the Romans. Not a cross. Not death on a cross. Greeks look for wisdom. The cross is not wisdom. That's foolishness. To those outside the faith, God got it all wrong. He did it upside down. He's all mixed up. Jesus, the Son of God on a cross? Death? How does that work? For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. May we never, ever, ever outgrow a deep sense for how much God loves us. And I ask you to join me in just pondering it deeply as you prepare for Easter. The love of God, measureless and strong. As you think of the cross, I encourage you to join me in feeling supreme gratitude and a determination to devote ourselves more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our goal to please him. We want to live like him, love like him, and lead like him. We want to please him in every way. Lord, we are supremely grateful for what you've done. We dedicate ourselves to serve you, to follow you. I invite you to take your communion.
as we think about the cross of Jesus Christ. I invite you to take the bread that represents his broken body. Just close your eyes, bow your head, and just ponder with me again. In your own heart, just say, thank you, Jesus, for giving your body. Thank you, Jesus, for being broken for me. Thank you, Jesus, for being crucified on that cross. As I take this bread, Lord, I take it remembering all you've done for me, your deep love for me, and I dedicate myself to love you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I love you. I want to follow you. Let's take the bread. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us more than we could ever imagine. And the cup represents his blood that was shed on the tree. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there'd be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the better way. Jesus is the perfect way. The blood of bulls and goats was only temporary. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to pay in total for the sins of all who have ever lived and all who will live. And most specifically for us. As we take the cup, let's be thankful and remember what he endured for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for what it reminds us of, Jesus. The way of the cross was brutal. The path of the cross was painful. The ridicule and rejection, the aloneness that you felt, the pain and ignominy, the embarrassment as you hung on that tree, all in all, you did it out of love. And we say thank you. We reflect on it deeply. Your love is indescribable. We praise your name. Amen. Amen. The resurrection and the cross go together in our faith, obviously. If there was no cross, you wouldn't need a resurrection. The resurrection presupposes there was a cross event. You don't typically see a, an empty tomb around a person's neck. You don't necessarily see an empty tomb adorning a, a hospital or a church. You don't see an empty tomb typically on someone's kitchen wall or in their home. You'll see it in paintings and things of that nature. But, but so often the cross and the resurrection are seen as one event. The love of God and the power of God. The love of God and the power of God. The provision of God in both. And even though Easter Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and that's where we're going to save uh, most of our thoughts, I do want to draw your attention to what I think is the greatest resurrection chapter in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in the moments that we have, I just want to point out some, some powerful things here. The cross shows God's love, yes, and the resurrection shows God's power. I was thinking this week about last Sunday, and we baptized 12 people in water. Wasn't that exciting? Let's put our hands together and celebrate that. 12 people baptized in water, just awesome. Uh, in the land of the 12, we baptized 12. It's amazing how that worked out. If you have not been baptized, please sign up right now online. Use the uh, connection card. We want to uh, get you uh, in line for the next service. But I was just thinking about this great baptismal 
kind of where we get the baptismal formula of immersion from Romans chapter 6. Notice what it says. Let's pick it up here in verse number 3. It says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. It's a beautiful picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as we teach those that are being baptized, and uh, if you're considering it, uh, I want to share this with you as well. Um, you know, the water, baptismal waters in the baptismal tank do not save us. Jesus Christ, by his blood, saves us. Can I hear a big amen? amen. But this is symbolic. Baptism is symbolic. And so as, as we teach, we, we let people know we, we dunk you, you put, you're immersed underwater, you're buried just like Jesus Christ was buried, and your sins are buried in the waters of forgiveness, the waters of forgetfulness, and you rise to newness of life just like Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You died to self and sin and you rise to newness of life. That's the symbol, that's the idea that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 6. And, and it's just a powerful truth that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead for us, and he wants us to die to our old self and live with a new spiritual life in Christ. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ lives in me. I mean, I continue to live, but it's no longer me, it's Christ. Yet Christ lives in me, and the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. We die to self and we, we raise to newness of life. As you look at chapter 15, we're just reminded uh, over and over again about the fact that Paul is talking to early, early Christians. And they are being pursued and hounded by the Romans and others who uh, are jealous, you know, uh, Jewish sects were jealous of them. They wanted to stamp them out, destroy them, thought they were a bunch of heretics. And Paul is writing to a group of these folks. And if you look at chapter 15, I would divide it into three parts. And we're going to look at the first one here, the creed and conviction. A little bit later, we're going to look at how the resurrection is the linchpin and foundation of our faith, and then the, our hope and our future. And Paul is weaving these three ideas throughout this whole chapter to help build up kind of a skittish early church who have just seen their Messiah crucified, but now risen, and they're trying to put it all together and somehow, you know, keep out of harm's way. So notice what it says here in verse number one. It says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. He says, I want to remind you, and it's a great reminder for us, you believe in Jesus Christ. You believe he was crucified. You believe he rose from the dead. This after he ministered among us for over 30, uh, lived for over 30 years and ministered among us for three years. You know this to be true. You have taken your stand on it. And then he says in verse two, now hold firmly. Hold firmly to what you know and what you believe. Do not be dissuaded. Do not be distracted. Do not be discouraged. Hold on, hold on, hold firmly to what you believe. That's a good word for us today in a day where there's so much blowing all around us. We need to anchor deep in Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, 
uh, died, you know, buried, uh, risen, and coming again. You know, the true essence of the gospel. Then we come to verse number three, and this, scholars tell us, is the earliest creed in the entire Bible, verses three through eight. Notice what it says. For what I received, I passed on to you. He's talking to early Christians. What I passed on to you of first importance, okay, this is important, early church, Christ died for our sins. To me, those are the five words of the gospel. Christ the Messiah, he did die. Who did he do it for? For you and me, our, he, you know, for other people, our, get my numbers right, and he, and he died for our sins. He came on a mission to pay for the sins of the world. I mean, there's a lot packed into those five words. It says here in verse 4, he was buried. He raised on the third day. And then he started appearing to a bunch of people post-resurrection. Peter and the 12 and uh, more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. And a bunch of other people. And then James. And then eventually to Paul on the road to Damascus. It is a powerful, powerful few verses where Paul is driving home the credo of early Christianity. And it's inspiring to me to take a look at it. He then comes a little bit later to verse number 12, and we're going to only look at a few verses here. But in this next section, he talks about how the resurrection is the linchpin, the foundation to the Christian faith. If you have no resurrection, then you have no Christianity. And he's talking uh, to the early church because there's a bunch of folks who denied the resurrection. Uh, one of the groups were the Sadducees. You've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious sects that were in operation during Jesus' time and Paul's time. And the Sadducees were the group that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you've heard me say this before. That's why they were sad, you see. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of you that are not laughing have a terrible sense of humor because that's very funny. Uh, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. And there were others that didn't believe in the resurrection, which meant the life you're now living is it. That's the end. You know, the be-all, end-all. That's, that's all there is, folks. And Paul says that's not even kind of close. That's not what Christianity teaches at all. That's not what Jesus Christ taught. That's not what Jesus Christ brought. That's not what Jesus Christ won. That's not what Jesus Christ did. And so I think this is so, so powerfully uh, important he, he talks about how resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. And he says, if you deny the resurrection, if you deny the resurrection, you basically are throwing all of Christianity out the window. And then he says, there are a few things to be aware of. Look at verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection, if you don't believe there's any resurrection, then not even Jesus is raised. So this whole idea of Jesus, Son of God, coming, dying for sins, raising again so that we could rise, that's not, that's not even real. So, so how can you have both? Either you're right or wrong, or I'm right or wrong. And Paul says, I'm right. This is what Jesus taught. This is what Jesus did. He goes on to verse 14. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then our preaching is useless because we preach about the resurrection and the hope of the future is in the resurrection. And he says, your faith is, is useless as well. Our faith in Jesus Christ is built on the fact he died on the cross for our sins, but he also rose so that we can rise to newness of life, both in the present as well as in heaven one day. More than that, 
We are found to be false witnesses about God. In other words, if there's no resurrection, then we're a bunch of false witnesses because what is our central message? Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. That is the gospel message. That's what it means to be Christian. That's it. That's all. That is what it's all about. So if you take out the, the risen part, then it all falls apart. And then he talks about verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised either. And we really have no hope. Christ is not raised. We're not going to ra- rise, etc. Verse 17, your faith is futile. If you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is futile. You don't have a, have a faith in the living God, Jesus, his son. You're still in your sins. If Jesus didn't rise, then we're not going to rise. Then, verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. He kind of wraps up this section by saying, if you don't believe in the life to come and everything is wrapped up in this life, that is pathetic. It's absolutely pitiful. Everything we teach says, hang in there, persevere, overcome. This is not all of it. This life is kind of a precourse. It's, a, it's a, 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 a life before the real life to come. Overcome in this life through the power of God. Consider it uh, um, a, a training ground to grow and mature. Your tests and your trials because heaven is to come. Perfection is to come. And so Paul, as only he can do, lays it out as a, an accountant, as an attorney, as a uh, uh, very educated teacher, line by line by line by line by line. And then he leads us to this final section. And he says, because the resurrection is real, because it's real, we have an eternal hope and we have a future. And he's basically saying, friends of mine, early church, I want you to think about that every day. We have a hope and a future, a hope and a future, a hope and a future. This life isn't all there is. One day we're going to heaven. One day we're going to be with him forever and ever and ever. And that is our blessed hope. That is what drives us. That's what keeps us going. In his words, he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then this saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, Paul says, he gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can you see another big amen? amen? Victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, friends, you are in a cathedral, a beautiful church, and you are on your knees looking at the stained glass and the ambiance of that awesome type of place. And you're allowing your mind to think deeply about Jesus and his vast love for you and all he did and all he is doing. And I want you just to allow your heart, your spirit to become overcome and overwhelmed with the presence 
of our loving Lord. Paul wraps it up in verse 58 by saying this. At the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, he says, okay, listen, stand firm. I don't care if the Roman Empire is coming at you. I don't care if uh, Jewish uh, false you know, religious leaders are coming at you. I don't care what's coming after you. You stand firm. Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, but he rose, and he is coming again for you. Stand firm. Let absolutely nothing move you, he says. Let absolutely nothing move you. Anchor deep. Anchor deep. And then he gives this action step. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. To me, that means we need to live, love, and lead like Jesus. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You have a little bit of time before I come back. Do the works of me. Jesus says, Paul says, do the works of the Lord. So what does the message of the cross mean to you? As today we begin this new series, as we prepare our hearts for celebration, Resurrection Sunday, Easter. What does the way of the cross mean to you? The crucifixion shows God's love. The resurrection portrays God's power. The obedience of Christ describes his unbelievable mission. His sacrifice on the tree explains the plan of God. And our salvation, because of what he did in dying and raising from the dead, meets my eternal need. Let's bow our hearts and heads in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us and all you have won for us. Forgiveness of sin and the hope of everlasting life. With all of our heads bowed and our eyes closed and just pondering and praying, I, I want to ask how many are here today that would say, Pastor Rob, on this first Sunday of Easter month, as I think deeply and ponder my faith, I feel that I need to commit or recommit my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never committed your life to Christ, or maybe you have, but you've kind of drifted away a bit. I pray that today will be commitment day. Those that are listening online, those that are in this service, those that have been in other services, I've asked the very same questions. Do you have the hope of everlasting life? Have you committed your all to Jesus? Do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven? If not, today is your day. I remember when it was my day. Today is your day. I invite you to just simply pray, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I want what you did on the cross and rising from the dead to count for me. But I realize I need to appropriate that by faith. So I put my faith in you. I believe in you. I invite you into my life. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Just pray a prayer like I'm talking here. Pray this prayer. Lord, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you. And if you do, if you commit or recommit your life, I ask you to do one more thing and fill out that connection card that's in front of you or it's on the app or if you're listening online, you can do it there and just say, Pastor Rob, I prayed the prayer. I committed my life to Jesus today and I, I'm willing to take and ready to take now the next steps. I want to help you with what those next steps might be, like being baptized, getting plugged in to studies of the Bible. 
for those of us who have accepted Christ some time ago, may our prayer be, Lord, thank you for all you've done for me. And today I want to dedicate myself again to you fully in every area and in every way. I want to live, love, and lead like you. I want to accomplish your ends. I want to fulfill your mission. And all of us, may we pray over these next couple of weeks, Lord, we pray for those who will be coming to our services or listening online or, uh, uh, you know, friends that we invite or whatever. We just pray, God, that many others will come and hear about the good news of God's love and also commit their life to Christ. Let's stand to our feet. And as you do, we're going to close this service in a couple of ways. I'm going to give a closing prayer, and then we're going to sing a final song. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. We'd love for you to step out and pray for a need you have, or maybe stand in for someone who has a special need. But our worship team's going to come and lead us, and our prayer team's going to come and pray with us. But let me just pray this. Lord, we ponder deeply and we contemplate sincerely the love of God and the power of God. And I pray by your Holy Spirit, you will light a fire, a new flame in us that quickens our desire to follow hard after you more than ever before. In Jesus' name. Let's sing together.